Welcome back to the 23rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be going through some of the top topics, including Joe Biden overstepping his bounds as president, how the left has really fallen in love with the idea of court packing, and we're going to address a protest that happened in China, and we're going to talk about the Communist Party Congress that is happening currently, and we'll see if uh, Xi Jinping comes out on top and is the dictator for life, as some people would like to say in China. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. Has the federal government grown beyond the founders' original intent? And, you know, that sounds like an obvious question. Of course. Of course they did not intend for the government to become this large. And when you look back, there's no way they could have foreseen where we have gotten. I mean, it was a little small experiment. How, how could they expect that this American experiment would last over 200 years, 250 years? And then something came to mind, which is, but they were smart men. Of, of course they had some idea that this could grow beyond what they had intended, and that's why they allowed states to create amendments so that as things changed throughout our world, we could adapt and we could pass new amendments. We also made it possible for Congress to pass new laws and expand their power and then every single different branch of the government would have a check on one another, so no one would get too far out of control. But nowadays, it seems that every single branch, every single branch, SCOTUS, the legislator, the executive, it seems that they have all overstepped their power to some degree. And I wonder if the founders had ever imagined that we would come this far. Not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but... I just want to know what you guys think. Do you think the founders really saw us getting to the point we're at today? And speaking of overreach, this really gets us into our first story, which comes from the National Review, the Biden administration's custom gun grab. And when they say here custom gun grab, they're not referring to, oh, it's a custom one that Biden came up with. Oh, it's his own special plan. No, no, no. They mean quite literally custom guns. There's a hyphen there in the middle. So according to the author, Aaron Earhart, President Biden has overstepped his power as president. So the question is, we may be asking, what did he, what did he do exactly? What, what is this overreach? So Biden has enacted what is being referred to as the final rule from the article, quote, drastically expanding the definition of what constitutes a firearm under federal law issued by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, ATF, and the Department of Justice. The regulation clocks in at a whopping 364 pages. If allowed to stand, the final rule would wreck chaos in the firearms market, create confusion among customers about what items are regulated as firearms, and shutter the doors of countless small businesses, such as tactical machining. Perhaps worst of all, however, it would undermine the historic and precious pastime and right of Americans to build their own firearms, end quote. And Tactical Machining here is a company that's based out of Florida, and they're one of the major proponents of a lawsuit, or sorry, I take that back, 
a civil proceeding to try to question the validity of this rule that is being put in by the ATF. And the, the question that we should be asking here, and this is something that I've been learning in my business law class, is did Congress give them, the ATF, the power to drastically change the definition of what a firearm is? Because that's what this rule does directly. They're not going through Congress. They're not saying, okay, let's get legislation passed so that we have a standard definition or a new definition, because as we'll get to later in the article, they already have a definition for what a firearm is. So they did not go through Congress to get this approved. They did not go through the people that us as Americans have elected to address these sort of issues. They're going through a bureaucracy. They're creating a new rule. And when it comes to creating these new rules, there are procedural procedures that they have to go through, and they have to ask for comment from the American people. And there can be pushback, but at the end of the day, they can still get that procedure, that new, technically it's a regulation, they can get that regulation out into the public without much pushback versus having to go through Congress, go through the House, go through different committees to make sure that everybody gets what they want in the bill and then making sure it passes in the House, and then going to the Senate where things are extremely tight right now. So this is why Biden went the bureaucratic route. He said, okay, it's going to be too difficult to get this through the House and the Senate. It's too overreaching, so I'm just going to basically do it how I want through a federal administration. Uh, Sorry, a federal agency. And, you know, it's a very tricky, tricky thing. I mean, if you noticed over the last few years, a lot of presidents have done similar things, such as Obama and Trump. They both use the executive order so liberally, and it, you know, it actually gives me so much confidence in our executive when I see them, you know what, no, 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 we, we don't need Congress for this one. We can just write it into law ourselves. We can just write an executive order that is overreaching, that directly affects Americans, and you know what, we'll just write it into law. I think that's extremely, extremely dangerous. And we've seen this expansion of power since the 1940s, if not even longer than that. I mean, we've seen the power of the executive just grow and grow. I mean, if you look back at Woodrow Wilson, he was a great proponent of expanding the executive's power. He basically, I'm not saying he wanted to become a dictator. That's unfair. But he believed that the people put the executive in the office and therefore he has the will of the people to implement what he wants as he wants. Now, he was not successful at almost destroying the legitimacy of the executive and expanding its power so far that no other branch of government matters. But we've seen this degrade, this decay for over 100 years of slowly chipping away. Oh, the president can do this. Oh, well, it's not explicitly said the president can't do this, so why not? And we've seen this over time. And this is just another example of how, if unchecked, these government agencies and these administrations and all the different branches slowly chip away and gain more power over our lives. And the only reason they can do that is because we don't fight back. We as a population say, oh, no, it's for our safety. It's okay that they're regulating uh, custom guns. It's okay that they're regulating the parts to these guns. You know, we, we need to make sure that these guns don't get into the hands of uh, criminals. And I, I don't disagree. That is a serious concern. 
But there has to come a point when you ask the question, do I want freedom or do I want security? And this COVID pandemic that we had just been through is a great example. I think there's a notion in the popular zeitgeist, maybe in the populace as a whole, that security is the most important thing, that we need to ensure that we are safe. And instead of ensuring that we are safe and having personal responsibility and kind of pushing that responsibility onto the individual, we push it towards the government. We say, government, help us out here. Make sure that we're safe. And, you know, that's not an unfair thing to ask. I mean, the government is there to provide police services to ensure that we are secure as a nation from foreign threats. So that, you know, that makes sense to me. Of course, we should put our trust in the government. But there is a point when you have to say, no, I'm not going to give you any more power. I'm not going to trust my security to you because you're starting to infringe upon my freedoms. And that's exactly what Joe Biden is doing here through this bureaucratic ruling. This is not a piece of legislation. It directly affects citizens who are proficient in firearms, especially those that want to make their own, which is you know, totally legal, by the way. It, when creating your own firearm, it is completely legal to have an unserialized firearm. And that raises the question again, why, do, why does the government want this power? Why does the government want the ability to stop custom firearms from being made? And if you notice, custom firearms don't have to have a serial number because they're not mass-produced, which means it's less easy to track them. And that is the thing I was trying to get at earlier, and it may have been a little bit messy, but the government has a vested interest in ensuring that they know where the firearms that are purchased from dealers are. And whether you like it or not, they have been trying to create a federal registry for all firearm purchases. So this is kind of a workaround eliminating the firearms that are not purchased through verified licensed dealers. Because you could create your own firearm that doesn't have to be licensed with these companies, meaning it's less easy for these government agencies to track them. So that also brings up the question that I was talking about earlier, which is crime. So how many of these, these firearms are actually used by criminals? Because obviously they don't want the government to be able to track them. They want an unserialized gun. So how, how many of them are used in illegal crimes? And the author points out here, quote, only an extremely small percentage of the guns, around 1% to 2% recovered in connection with criminal activity, are unserialized. The vast majority of crimes are committed with guns that the government licensed for sale, end quote. So that's a really shaky leg for the government to stand on, saying, oh, we, we need to make sure that these unserialized guns are not in the hands of criminals. Well, only 1% to 2% of crimes that are committed, or at least that have been seized, that are related to crimes are unserialized. So for the most part, it seems that this is going to directly impact citizens who want to create their own firearms and aren't impacting uh, or involved with crime in any way. If we take the statistics, 99 or 98% of these unserialized weapons are not used for crime, or at least have not been recovered by the government when they're used for crime. So, that, you know, that's a staggering number. And like I said, it makes the government's argument about these firearms even weaker. 
And I want to make sure that we have clearly defined what a firearm is here because this also matters because they're trying to expand the definition to practically anything that could be involved in the process of making a firearm. So Congress, quote, Congress defines firearm in the Gun Control Act of 1968 to include any weapon, including a starter gun, which will or is designed or may readily be converted to expel a projectile by the action of an explosive as well as the frame or receiver of such any such weapon, end quote. And, you know, the author does point out, yeah, that, that's quite a mouthful. But if you notice here, it doesn't include unfinished frames, receivers, or weapon parts kits. And with the expansion of this definition in this final rule, as it's called, those are included in the definition of a firearm, which is extremely, extremely dangerous. And not only is it dangerous because it basically says if you have an unfinished firearm, that has to be regulated or controlled by the government, but also because there is an entire market built around this. As we were talking about earlier with the Florida company, Tactical Machining, they have built up an entire industry around creating your own custom gun or at least having parts in order to repair your gun if something happens to it. So... Not only is it dangerous because it's an overstep of government power, but it's dangerous because it's basically infringing upon an entire market. It's going to destroy people's livelihoods because they're making it so convoluted as to what people can and cannot purchase without having to go to the ATF and say, oh, I've purchased this. I want to make sure that you know I I have this. If those some customers don't do that, then they could be fined or they could be uh, criminally prosecuted. So I think it's very, very dangerous. And I think it's a big overreach from Biden. And, you know, you may disagree. And if you do disagree, please put it in the comments. I want to hear other people's opinions on this. Maybe there's an aspect to this argument or this article that I'm, I'm not reading into. Maybe I'm not smart enough to see the bigger picture. Maybe I don't have enough of the vision to understand what Biden's going for here. Well, those are the kind of discussions I would love to have with people down in the comments. So if you have an opinion, place it there. So the question I'll leave with on this one is, will this actually solve gun violence or is it a sneaky workaround? And yes, I'm very well aware that that is a weighted question. If you can't tell my opinion on this one, well, then you must not be listening. Our next article comes from Mother Jones. And if you don't know Mother Jones, they have very long, dense articles. So what I would suggest, and this is just me putting it out there, is I'll be breaking down a small part of this article, but if you want to fully understand what they're saying here, I would go read the article. Their articles are very long, they're very dense, and it is very hard to break down everything in a 10 to 15 minute segment on a podcast. So I'm taking selective quotes, so keep that in mind. And, you know, I'm trying to portray the entire story without getting too lost in the weeds. The article headline reads, How the Left Lost Faith in SCOTUS and Learned to Love Packing the Courts. So over the past year, the Supreme Court has made some very controversial opinions. If you haven't been paying attention, of course, Dobbs is a very important one when it comes to abortion. They also made it easier to finance 
people that are running for public office. Uh, they've made a few different cases that really impact environmental and uh, climate change. So, you know, they've made lots of decisions that people on the left may not necessarily agree with. And this has really spurred the activist class on the left. So in an article the other day that I was talking about in a podcast, the, the Progressive Party does not have popular control. They do not have the populace on their side in general when it comes to, oh, we want to get them into Congress. We want to get them into elected office. You know, it's hard to appeal to the broader American public and get these kind of people who have really progressive ideas into Congress and, you know, into other places that are not uh, bureaucrats, but places that are actually elected. So there's a growing and blossoming activist class on the left because that's how they exert their influence. They lobby the Democrats that are currently in place to get their progressive pieces of legislation or their progressive ideas into Congress. So this activist class all across the country has become ever more aware of the Supreme Court's power because, as they noted here, Actually, I think it's important that we point out the, the main activist that they speak about this entire article, which is Sarah Lipton Lubet. She, for years, for years, worked on ensuring that people have ready access to um, basically abortions, that making sure that if you want to get an abortion, you can, and trying to ease certain regulations on the federal level, make it easier for certain people if they're in a terrible situation, if they were raped, or even if they just want to have an abortion because they don't think they can raise the child. She was doing that sort of activism. And when Dobbs hit, she realized that all that hard work, all the work that she had put in for all these years, all it took is one Supreme Court decision. One, just like that. And now all that hard work, gone. And, you know, it's made her reevaluate what she wants to do. Quote, the movement to reform the Supreme Court is gaining momentum and credibility at a rapid pace in a large part because of people like Lipton Lubet, advocates for progressive causes who watch the ascension of Trump-appointed justices to ill-gotten seats on the bench and have now concluded that there's life, their life's work can never be realized if the Supreme Court's current conservative majority remains in power, end quote. So these activists have really, really started to realize how important the Supreme Court is. And it really has resonated with them that we need to ensure that the Supreme Court does not rule against our lifelong pursuits of activism. And it's very interesting to me that these people that they're so emotionally invested in what they believe. And and, and this is why I don't attribute malice to any progressives when they want to get something passed, even though it doesn't seem logical. And this goes for some people on the right as well. This is why I try not to attribute malice to anybody who proposes something that seems a little bit idiotic or seems illogical on its face. Because these people, these activists, they've become so emotionally invested. They believe what they are fighting for is the right thing. They believe what they're fighting for is ethical. And they are willing, at the end of the day, to do whatever it takes to ensure 
that what they believe in, what they have invested their life in because they think it is the right thing to do, they, at the end of the day, are willing to entertain the idea of packing the Supreme Court. And it's even more important in this new term because for a lot of these activists, these judges are taking on a lot of important cases this term, such as ones pertaining to affirmative action, LGBTQ plus rights, and uh, pollution that's going to directly affect America's waterways. So these activists really do believe what they're doing is righteous, and that's why I don't attribute malice, and I don't think anybody should. I think, you know, maybe they don't, some people don't have a great understanding of how their policies will affect the society as a whole, or maybe they do, and they think that's the right way for society to go. And we, on the other side of the aisle, may disagree. And the same thing with people on the right. They may have some of the most crazy, isolationist Christian views about what this nation should be. But they believe deep down that that is how things should be. And they, they're not saying it, oh, we need to discriminate against these people or we need to pass policies that you know, would be not necessarily beneficial towards certain types of people. And the left kind of points at them and says, oh, no, you're, you're being racist, you're being discriminatory. And maybe they see it that way. But at the end of the day, they, can't, they shouldn't attribute malice to another worldview that genuinely believes that they're doing the right thing. That's where we really have fallen apart in America, in my opinion, is everybody's so invested in their side and they can't see beyond their own worldview. They can't say, no, no, I understand why that person would think that way. I understand that maybe they think it's the right thing to do. And I actually have to persuade them and inform them why it's not the right thing to do. And if they don't end up agreeing with me, it's not the end of the day. It's not like we have to come to bear arms against one another. We can be civilized. We can leave the conversation. And we can say we tried our best. And then we can try to work together on future proposals. And that's where this divide really is. And it's very interesting that one side is really willing to break convention. The left is, as the article points out here, really, really fallen in love with the idea of packing the court. Quote, once considered both practically impossible and political suicide, there are now roughly 63 members of Congress who supported legislation to expand the court, with several more behind legislation to impose new terms on the justices. Under pressure from the left, President Joe Biden summoned a commission to study Supreme Court reform, including court expansion, something inconceivable just a few years ago, end quote. I think it's interesting that just one side is really willing to break convention. And then again, that makes sense. Conservatives want to conserve. They want to keep the rules that we've had in place because they worked for us so far. And people that are progressive want to progress. They want to change the system. But this is an extremely dangerous change, in my opinion. I think that changing the makeup of the Supreme Court, in le- at least in a way that is not going to make it equal with the amount of representation on both sides, that's extremely, extremely dangerous. And it's going to lead to even less faith in the Supreme Court from the right. If the left thinks that they don't have faith in the Supreme Court right now, imagine when they pack it. The right will never trust them again, even if they get people that are on the right back into these seats and they have a majority again. Even then, they will have no faith that the 
people on the left, the progressives, the Democratic Party, won't do the exact same thing again, which is just pack the court in order to, for it to be in their favor. So you see here that this is just going to be a cycle. I hate to use this idea of the slippery slope because at the end of the day, it is a fallacy. Just because something could be a slippery slope doesn't mean it's going to be a slippery slope. But if you look at the political realities of our country, once you give an inch, people take a mile. It's, it's quite literally that simple. I, I'm sorry to sound really cynical, but I just don't see another way that this works out. Once they start packing the court, we are going to see either the Republicans do the exact same thing when they're in power, or we're going to see over time the conservatives get the court back because they don't want to break precedent. They don't want to be the ones to pack the court. And then when they finally have that majority, the left says, no, we, we can't stand for this. The activists say, no, 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 we can't have this. My life's work can't go down the drain like this. And then they push for court packing again. Because look, oh, we, we did it 10 years ago. Look at that. There's precedent. We can do it. So I, I, I don't think it goes anywhere good. And I've been ranting a little bit too long on this one, so I'll, I'll bring up the last quote I have here. And earlier in the article, the author said that the, a lot of people were in favor of uh, packing the court based on recent polls, end quote. And then buried a lot deeper in the article, she actually brings up these statistics. And it's not as clear-cut as she would like to say it is. Quote, last month, a Marquis Law School poll found that Americans are evenly split on the question of adding justices, with 51% in favor and 49% opposed. Nearly three-quarters of Democrats now support the idea, as do 51% of independents. New term limits are even more popular. A July poll found that more than two-thirds of Americans, including majorities of both Democrats and Republicans, support them. So, end quote. Uh, so, obviously, you know, it's not as clear-cut saying that a majority, a small majority, about 1%, by about 1%, a small majority is in favor of adding justices, which, you know, I, I'm not going to put anything into that. that. That's a small majority. At the end of the day, it's basically split 50-50. We shouldn't do it. It's not as popular as people would like to believe. What I do find interesting is two-thirds of Americans including both Democrats and Republicans, are okay with term limits. I think that's a very interesting thing to do. I, I think it goes against the original intent of the, of the founders because at the end of the day, you could have a Supreme Court justice on there for 50-plus years, and I think the intent of that was, though it's not explicitly stated, there are lots of theories or lots of political discussions as to why that is the case, but I like to go with the argument that it's meant to hold America back. It's meant to keep us tied to our history and keep us from making too much progress too fast. And what I mean by progress is large sweeping changes that will completely uproot the society. It's meant to pull us back when we move too fast. And then when something is absolutely amazing and it really fits in with the Constitution and it's a step forward, then that's the point where the Supreme Court says, yes, okay, this is, this is good change. The Supreme Court is basically a check on the legislator and the executive asking them to hold us back when we're trying to move too fast, at least in my opinion. So I think term limits 
aren't necessarily a great thing because then we're constantly rotating the judges over and over and over again. And also, what happens if the Democrats aren't in power for 10 years? What, what, I'm just saying in a theoretical sense, if you're a Democrat, and even if you're a Republican, just imagine the other party is in power for 10 years. Then there's no term limits, meaning there's no holdover. Every few years they're putting on new justices, which means for those 10 years, all, all the decisions are going in favor of the party in power because there's no term limits. There's no holdover from a previous administration. It's just the current administration and whatever their policies are and whoever they want on the court. So I, I think it's, it's dangerous. I also do agree that it may help improve the faith that people have in the court because, oh, there's not these 50-year-old 50, 50 long judges like Clarence Thomas who's been on there forever. It may make people feel as though that they have a voice currently. If they put in people that they really support into the legislature, then they'll have an impact on the Supreme Court rather than it being people that have been on there for 50 years and have stayed there because their grandparents or your parents voted for a legislator who put them into the Supreme Court. So I think that could improve the faith that people have in the court. But it's an interesting argument, and I think it's one that we're going to have to have over the next few years, especially as this idea of court packing becomes more popular. So our last story here, which will be a brief one, comes from the BBC. China protest, mystery Beijing demonstrator sparks online hunt and tributes. Can you imagine living in a country where dissent is not accepted? Can you imagine being told how to think and being persecuted for not thinking the same way. Would you stand up? Would you fight back? Would you risk everything for what you believe in, the truth? Would you be the man standing in front of the tank? And could you be the one calling for the overthrow of a current regime? One man in Beijing asked himself all of these questions and found himself hanging up banners in protest to President Xi Jinping and the CCP. Quote, the protester had mounted on Steyong Bridge in Hidan district of Beijing and draped two large banners calling for an end to China's harsh zero-COVID policy and the overthrow of Mr. Xi. While state media had remained silent, photos and videos of Thursday's event have circulated widely online, prompting a swift crackdown by censors on social media platforms and the WeChat app used by most Chinese. Thursday's protests took place on the eve of a historic Communist Party Congress, where Mr. Xi is due to be handed a third term as party chief, cementing his hold on power. The person also set what appeared to be car tires on fire and could be heard chanting slogans into a bullhorn, end quote. So the Communist Party has really, really been locking down Beijing over this last week because of their party congress. And they're trying to ensure that there's no dissent and they're trying to ensure that there's no unrest. And they've also wanted to make sure that people don't flee the city and go to places that have high COVID rates and then bring that back to Beijing. So, you know, this is this is a big protest. I, I'm not saying it's on the level of Tiananmen Square. It, you know, that that's a... That's a totally different historic event that carries a lot of weight. But the fact that somebody during this time when Beijing is swarmed with cops, just swarmed with people, 
trying to ensure that the CCP remains in power and trying to make sure that she consolidates his power within the party. It's, it's a bold move to be protesting like this. And this man, as the article says, and I hate to sound like a, a normal Westerner, this man is a hero. I'm, I think that for too long, people have not stood up to the CCP. And this kind of protest, though it is extinguished fast, and the words that were used you know, in any of these posts were censored. Quote, actually, I'll bring up a quote here. Quote, the man's name, among other materials related to the protest, that has been censored online. No references to the incident could be found on Chinese social media site Weibo as on Friday morning. Footage and pictures of the protests and related keywords, including Hidan, Beijing protester, and Stayong Bridge, were quickly scrubbed. Phrases tangentially related to the protests, including bridge, hero, also returned limited results, end quote. So this just really speaks to the, the power that the Communist Party has over their populace. Not only have they convinced people that it's a good thing, that they control their lives so intimately, but when it comes to anything online, they, they censor any reference to this sort of protest. And not only does it make it hard to spread news within the China, but also it makes it really hard to report on this sort of stuff and get the news out to different agencies like the BBC or other international news agencies. So I think this man is a hero. I think he, he did the right thing. And that's, you know, it's easy to say because I don't live in China. And I, I think they're an authoritarian regime, if I'm being honest. And, you know, maybe some people in China disagree. Maybe they have a, a better view of the CCP. Maybe it has lifted them out of poverty. But from the outside world, it, it's a, a deep, dark path they have gone down. And if she gets to be the uh, party chairman for a third term, I don't see it changing anytime soon. So this is what happens when you put faith in a government that doesn't look out for your best interest, but rather looks out for the interests of themselves and the nation as a whole. This is what happens when you don't hold power accountable. And this is why this protest is so powerful. This person is trying to hold the CCP and the people in power accountable, and he's trying to make sure that they understand what they're doing is negatively affecting the people. And he's also trying to ensure that the people know that what they're doing is not in their best interest. And I think that's why the word hero really does apply here. But, you know, let's get on from all the negative stuff. Let's get to our daily delight. So this one comes from the Hiddenston Times. Cute pet corgi dog run away, runs away from cops in its car. So a cute little corgi named Bubba was caught speeding in his cozy little toy car. Quote, the video opens to show this adorable little munchkin seated in a toy car that appears to be remote controlled operated. There's a good chance that you will want to keep watching the video over and over again, owing it to its sheer cuteness and how absolutely hilarious it is. The video then continues to show how the dog manages to, quote, run away from the cops. And, you know, if I ever need a getaway driver, I know exactly who I'm calling. I, I'm calling Bubba because, gosh, th this man, you know, he's evading the police like a pro. Um, one of the comments I really enjoyed from this one is, quote, your videos are the best, but who's going to bail you out? Asked an Instagram user quite hilariously. Absolutely adorable. Complimented another individual. The foot is so perfect, remarked a third. So 
if you want to see any of these cute videos from this article, or if you want to read any of today's articles, like the Mother Jones one that I mentioned earlier, you really should give that one a read because it goes into a lot more depth than I could cover here. Then hit that link in the description below the like and subscribe button. Also follow me on Twitter. That's where I give out uh, some sort of news on the daily, whether it's from my own feed that I'm reading every day or commenting and making sure that certain stories get a little bit more coverage that I find on Twitter. And with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.